to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we're talking about the renewed push for a unified Latin America as amplified by Mexican President AMLO, the continued fight for voting rights, especially for black and other people of color, against the backdrop of the limitations of the 19th Amendment. And we're having an update on the political implications of the earthquake in Haiti. And later on in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on, about the 19th Amendment. In 1870, the 15th Amendment was ratified to prohibit states from denying male citizens the right to vote based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And people love to point out that black men were granted the right to vote in the Constitution before black women were. But yeah, don't do that. While it is true that the Civil War, sorry, while it is true that after the Civil War, black men did vote, were allowed to vote under the 15th Amendment for Reconstruction governments across the South, particularly, let's not forget that white men put an end to Reconstruction violently, lynching and white riots and the Klan and vigilante murders. And the 13th Amendment was ratified the same year that the Civil War ended, made it easier for states to take advantage of the exception clause of that amendment to ramp up institutional efforts to criminalize black men to not only return them to bondage, but to take away that right to vote that the 15th Amendment supposedly guaranteed because they were criminals. But the 14th Amendment that was ratified in July 1868 that repealed the three-fifths clause of the Constitution and that was supposed to ensure that all male citizens over age 21, no matter their race, had a right to vote. But that amendment also has an exception clause. And we don't ever talk about that because Section 2 of that amendment, the 14th, puts forth that states that disenfranchise eligible men from voting will have their representation in Congress reduced by the proportional number of men denied the vote, except if those men were denied the vote, quote, for participation in rebellion or other crime. Those three little words, or other crime, in the 14th Amendment, drafted by the so-called anti-slavery Republicans now, don't ever forget that, set in motion the widespread disenfranchisement of black men from the ballot box. Five states had already passed felony disenfranchisement laws by 1840. By the time the Civil War ended, about 24 states had some form of felony disenfranchisement policy or similar provisions in their state constitution. But that little clause in the 14th Amendment gave four more states the impetus to enact felony disenfranchisement laws and another constitutional vehicle to criminalize black men to deny them the vote. And this effort continues to this very day. So nope. Not buying the argument that black men got their voting rights when black women didn't. On paper, sure, but what really happens tells a whole nother story. But this celebration every year of the 19th Amendment also bothers me. 
because people love to point out how on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment was ratified, granting women the right to vote. Yes, the amendment does say, quote, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. But every year we have to remind people that black women were not included in this amendment, nor were Native American women, nor were Asian women, nor were Latinx or Mexican women. While it is true that states could and did use poll taxes and other voter suppression tactics, already used across the country to deny voting rights to black men to also later keep black women from voting, they could and did use those same tactics against Latinx women, indigenous women, and many Asian women who lacked citizenship in 1920, meaning they couldn't vote in the first place. But white women? I don't think any of that happened a lot. To white women, I, look, I'm sure there were some efforts to keep women from exercising their rights to vote on some level. But whatever they were, it was never on the scale of the sustained and concerted efforts to keep black people and other non-white people from voting. I think the 19th Amendment might be one of the few times in the history of passing laws in this country when white men were like, well, OK, then. And just pretty much did what the law said they should do, which was to not stop white women from voting. White women. And this idea that white women generally fought for the right to vote for black people after the 19th Amendment was passed. Well, no, some did. Yes. But the heroines of the suffragette movement and many white women in the suffragette movement, well, they were racist. They were mad that black men got the vote before they did, and they didn't want black women to have the vote with them. And I'm not making this up. Because even among the most prominent white suffragettes, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they were at one time part of the American Equal Rights Association, a group they formed with Frederick Douglass, who was a staunch suffragist, and other activists in 1866, but Elizabeth Cady Stanton said at one time, quote, we educated virtuous white women are more worthy of the vote in the context of black men and black women not being worthy at all. And then there was no unity with black women, as she said, that if black folks were allowed to vote, then black women would find an even worse slavery under black men than they did under their former white slave owners. And then Susan B. Anthony said when she refused to support the 15th Amendment that Frederick Douglass supported that enfranchised black men, Anthony said, quote, think of Patrick and I can't say that word, but it starts with an S and ends with an O and haunts and young tongue who do not know the difference between a monarchy and a republic who cannot read the Declaration of Independence or Webster's spelling book, making laws for Susan B. Anthony. The 15th Amendment creates an antagonism everywhere between educated, refined women and the lower orders of men, especially in the South. Gee, I wonder what lower orders of men she was talking about. She made it very clear. Black men, immigrant men, Asian men, everybody but white men. She even asked Frederick Douglass not to appear on stage at a suffrage event because it would have been unseemly for him to be up there on the stage with white women. 
And let's not ever forget the massive 1913 suffragette march in New York City when the organizers told black suffragette organizations to march in the back of the procession apart from the white suffragettes. So in 1920, when the 19th Amendment was ratified, black and other non-white women still could not vote. And they formed their own suffragette organizations. And when they tried to reach out to the main suffrage organizations at the time, they were ignored. Listen, I was born in 1967. My grandmama voted for the first time in her life, just two years before I was born. She was 39 years old. The 19th Amendment gave white women only the right to vote in 1920. So I'm not entirely sure what people expect women like me to celebrate, especially since black people are still fighting for the right to unrestricted access to the ballot box to this day. In the words of Dr. Jemima Pierre, we just live here. None of these laws were written for us. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to continue this discussion about voting rights in the context of women's voting rights, black people's voting rights, and the continued struggle for unrestricted access to the ballot box. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Anoa Changa, movement journalist. Anoa, thank you so much for joining us. So good to be with you. Thank you. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done in this area, especially where you are uh, in Georgia, because uh, election uh, uh, issues, voting access, still a huge problem uh, in Georgia as the Georgia Republican controlled state election board took a step Wednesday toward what's being called a possible takeover of elections in Fulton County. And, you know, Fulton County was made the focus of in the last uh, presidential election by Trump with the claims of, you know, stolen election and, you know, inconsistencies with the, the voting and ballots and such. What does this move by the uh, Georgia State Election Board have to do with that uh, a narrative from Trump and what is going on? What, is, what do they mean by a takeover of elections in Fulton County? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really appreciate the question and the space for the conversation. As, as you know, and your listeners know, um, when we saw in 2020, uh, the election, the massive call, and even leading before the actual election itself, right? We saw the attack on vote by mail and it's all grounded with the same, you know, a disinformation campaign around so-called uh, voter fraud, which is a virtually non-existent practice. There is some indication from the research that it has a slightly, slightly greater prevalence when you're talking about um, you know, people using absentee ballots, but even that still is relatively uh, minute in comparison of all the millions upon millions of votes that are cast in a given cycle, right? Um, 
And so, but this, this, this spreading and this weaving of this information has unfortunately played uh, election processes around the country. We saw recently Arizona um, with the sham uh, uh, investigation. They're trying to do something similar in Wisconsin, but in Georgia in particular, which is like, goes back and forth with Texas as ground zero for these fights, um, we have this uh, 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 cabal that has been hell-bent on trying to minimize the impact of Black and other voters of color. When you talk about Fulton County, you're talking about Atlanta. You're talking about what signifies to the rest of the state a very strong Democratic stronghold that is predominantly Black, increasingly Latino, and uh, uh, AAPI, right? And so attacking the vote, claiming there's widespread fraud, claiming there's no other way that people could win without, you know, uh, some type of weird machinations. I mean, there are Fulton County, you know, election workers in that area who got threats in that first week after the election. There was false claims of ballots, stuffing, all types of wildness. But then these were repeated. You know, it's one thing to have people outside the process, you know, just regular folks, you know, saying nonsense on social media. But this these were this is amplified by actual elected officials. Right. They allowed for Giuliani and other folks to come into the state capitol and, and, and give testimony, false testimony about these occurrences. They've tried to overturn the votes and demand recounts and all types of stuff. So we see a very systemic controlled effort because of the increasing increasing prevalence and strength of a multiracial coalition that is that just flipped the state blue in terms of two Senate seats on the verge ahead of another major Senate election because Senator Raphael Warnock was just finishing out the, the term of former Senator Johnny Isaacson and he will be up for re he is up for re-election in twenty twenty two. So so we are looking at the death throes of, you know, uh, Jim Crow, the Esquire, as Ensei Ufat from the New Georgia Project likes to call it. We're seeing people on their on their deathbed fighting very hard to the very end to make sure that, you know, the balance of power is not shifted away from them. Yeah, that that is absolutely true. And I'm glad that you mentioned elected officials who are behind this because, you know, the Democrats kind of made a hero almost out of uh, Brad Raffensperger when he was very adamant in, uh, I guess, defending the election process in uh, Georgia, saying that there was no uh, election fraud, there was no voter fraud. Um, but it, it appears that he's just, you know, he's going along with this, if, you know, not uh, behind uh, this call. So, I mean, what does that say, Anoa, when we have a, a Democratic Party that is very quick to, you know, make heroes out of people who will turn right around, well, who have a history of disenfranchising uh, voters in the first place, especially voters of color. And then when they do one thing that's sort of decent, then, you know, they're made heroes. And then people are shocked when they go right back to doing what they've always done. Well, I will say, I don't know that the Democrat, I don't know that Democratic Party folks in Georgia are shocked um, having gone several rounds with the Secretary of State's office, whether it is Raffensperger or uh, the current governor, Brian Kemp, before him. But we did see nationally this thank you, oh my God, so much. And there is a tendency of national entities and national figures to talk over local folks, regardless of what the issue is, and, and their own direct experience. I wrote a piece earlier this year for Truth Out, I believe it was, just really talking about how Brad Raffensperger was not 
this saint and 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 champion. I think there was a piece maybe in the Atlantic recently that even called him like a champion of the 2020 election, which is absolutely false. Brad Raffensperger did the bare minimum of his damn job. Right. He 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 held the line and refused to do something that was blatantly illegal in that conversation that was leaked by his office that he had with the Trump team, Trump and his team asking him to find basically to, to like just stuff the ballots and regulation. The same thing they're accusing like ballot voters of doing. Right. And but what, what we're supposed to, need to understand about Raffensperger and what folks in Georgia know very well about the Republican Party, because even though he's standing the line and not wanting to do something that's blatantly illegal. Um, he very much is upholding the process uh, of that these Republicans are trying to implement through the SB202, which was signed into law earlier this year. But not only that, he played both sides in such a way that while he was sidestepping some of the more egregious behaviors, he still gave credence. So you would have Brad Raffensperger or other members of his staff or affiliated officials making statements about how, you know, Georgians do not have faith in the process. But that lack of faith in the process is due to the misconduct of people within his party. Brad Raffensperger is very much a partisan, had said very frequently, multiple occasions, that even as he was refuting the accusations that the Trump campaign and others were making against the election process, kept reasserting his Republicanness, was encouraging people to vote for the Republican candidates uh, uh, for Senate, and was, was was assuring people that, you know, he is a Republican Party person. So understanding what that means, and this is not like, you know, uh, uh, one party's good and the other one's not. This is just making it very clearly that he worked in such a way that was within the confines of his actual position that stood on the side of the law that would not get him in legal trouble, but making sure that he was also providing the space, credence, and cover for this type of shenanigans that led to the introduction and then passage of SB202, which fundamentally changes the, 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 the playing, the level, the, the, the playing field in Georgia and, and still trying to keep it tilted in a way that makes it more difficult for people of color, low income, young folks to cast their ballots. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, Georgia is not the only state where these kinds of uh, actions are going on. Um, And I want to get into like the details of what this, uh, you know, what will happen in this process, because this board that was appointed includes three people to conduct this performance review in Fulton County. And they include a Republican, uh, Ricky uh, Kittle, who is chairman of the Catoosa County Elections Board, a Democrat. Stephen Day, a member of the Gwinnett County Elections Board, and Ryan Germany, who is, you know, ironically general counsel for Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. I mean, aside from me wondering, you know, why a Democrat would even go along with if it, it, this if they're supposed to be so much better at protecting uh, the votes of, of of people of color and marginalized people, the process this this board is supposed to undertake is that they're going to investigate equipment, registration, processes, and compliance with state law. This process is supposed to take uh, nearly a year. But of course, the big concern is that it would actually make elections in Fulton County less trustworthy. And how how would that happen? How was this? How would this process make elections less trustworthy, Anoa? Yeah, I mean, just to touch on like why would a Democrat? I mean, it's a it's a process that unfortunately because the law was passed into, um, you know, into, into, into because the law was is now law. 
um, you know, having it, it's the it's one from the Republican viewpoint, it's the appearance of, you know, balance. Right. Having someone else involved in the process that's not a complete Republican, you know, uh, thing. Um, but I think having someone, you know, participate, I mean, it's it's a part of their actual duties for, you know, like the job, the, the role that they're taking on. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's that's what it is, because otherwise you have a legal process. Or, or, or a statutory, you know, process that has no representation at all, right? Um, why would it make it, you know, more? I, I think the concerns are really the subterfuge because Republicans have been coming Senate for the Fulton County Board of Elections, um, and and. You know, the the one of the things is they've been really gunning for the elections director. Now, voting rights advocates and other folks have their own issues with Richard Barron, who's the elections director. Um, I remember sitting after the 2018 election and listening to hearing testimony um, that several folks were given. And so th- there are challenges. But part of the challenges that you'll see in the large population that is, you know, Fulton County and the way elections administered are not the individual counties, you know, themselves. It's really the hodgepodge and lack of real guidance from the state level that is being evaluated, but the buck is being passed off on the actual, you know, uh, counties themselves. But there also there is a there is a recalcitrance within individual county boards of elections to do certain things or take certain measures that could be better that are being recommended by members of the community, whether they're civic engagement organizations or individuals, you know, who are experiencing these processes. So, like. This is a very partisan attack that this is the first, that, that, that this is where they're starting. Um, it's very much clearly on display. But but part of the, the concerns about insecurity in the elections, trusting elections, is that this process could make it seem like there's something nefarious or wrong going on in Fulton County. That's one. I mean, two, though, it is because we've already seen, I can't remember which state it was, we already saw like one of these processes um, a Republican elected official had leaked information, I think it was in Colorado, that raised some questions about the security of some of the voting machines. So we've already seen Republicans, you know, act in a very partisan way that actually undermines the election security uh, through these different processes. So, you know, people's concerns about whether or not you know, there are legitimate things happening uh, of concern could make people question whether or not they should move forward. I still, you know, suggest to everyone that if possible, you vote early or uh, because we have municipal elections coming up, you know, many places in the state this year as well. So we do have elections happening. Uh, We have the city of Atlanta and other places that are having elections right now. Um, this year while this is beginning to go. So I think there could be concerns in terms of whether or not people's votes recount. Like, will people be a little too overly cautious in terms of, you know, processing absentee ballot requests and things of that nature? So um, um, there, there is quite a bit going on. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really disappointing, though, overall to see how partisan they have made, which should be a process that everyone wants to, 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 to happen without, without issues. So, I mean, there are, you know, there are management issues because these are individuals and staff that are usually, you know, underfunded, understaffed in some instances that are handling a large volume uh, of, of information in a given election cycle. And in particularly, you know, last year with the pandemic, um, when we had the increase in processing absentee ballot applications and processing absentee ballots in general. So, there was a lot happening. So instead of blaming individual counties, the state really should have taken a more holistic approach to making sure people had the staffing and support they needed. But that unfortunately doesn't happen. You know, it's always good to remind people, Anoa, that 
in between the presidential elections every four years and in between the midterm elections every two years, there are local elections, municipal elections that go on pretty much almost perpetually across this country. So voting rights is not just an issue of who we get to vote for for president. We're talking about uh, uh, critical uh, uh, public office elections for school board members. In some places, voting for sheriff, voting for, you know, tax assessors in, in some places, voting for people whose jobs absolutely impact the lives of people every day, especially working class and poor people um, in, 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 in a direct and immediate uh, uh, fashion. And this whole conversation is had against the backdrop, I think, of the commemoration of the 101st anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which you know, gave women the right to vote in this country, or at least, you know, extended that, you know, told the the, the states that they couldn't prohibit women from vote, voting. But we, every year or no, we have to remind people that the 19th Amendment only extended that protection to white women, black women, Latinx women, Asian women, still, and, and Native American women still did not have the right to vote in any election in this country until much, much later. How important is that historical truth about the 19th Amendment and the right to vote in the, in the current struggles for continued pursuit of unrestricted access to the ballot? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good point. And what I'll say is, like, I wrote a piece that's up on Rewire News Group's website um, called Black Women's Suffrage Has Always Been a Matter of Life and Death. And so Black women, just like Black men, like Frederick Douglass and others, like, their whole focus was always universal suffrage, right? Um, you had several, you know, like, Black uh, 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 people fighting for voting rights, like Frederick Douglass, who are very supportive of the women's movement. However, white women, I think the reason— Two reasons, right? First, because black women, black folks have always been about universal suffrage and making sure people have access to the ballot across the board. It's true today. It was true yesteryear. Um, but also noting the way that white women looked out for the interests of whiteness and opposed to the advancement of all and how white women have, and unfortunately some still do, put the interests of whiteness ahead of, you know, uh, uh, diversity and advancement and equity, right? Uh, why we need to understand that and process in these current battles is because of the way in which I, I'm actually in Mississippi right now, right, working on a piece around um, the, the upcoming SCOTUS case and abortion access in the South. And one of the things that someone I was talking to said to me was and she drew a parallel between the voting rights battles and, you know, access. You know, folks would be all on board about you know, abortion access and role because it benefits them, it suits them. When we talk about voting rights and like IDs and things of that nature, they don't have an understanding. They don't have a threshold. Some people don't know or don't get, or like, why is that such a big deal? Or, or I mean, I'm okay with voter ID or whatever the case may be, right? And so that was jarring, you know, for the, for the person I was talking to because it's like either you listen and follow, you know, the experiences of people consistently as we're trying to lead and build in these fights or you just stay out of our way, 
one or the other. And so I think, you know, talking and reminding people because we have a whitewashing of history that happens across the board. When we're talking about the 19th Amendment, yes, it did make, you know, certain inroads and did pass pay certain things, but it still took subsequent, you know, acts. Uh, to make sure that the right to vote for, for, for non-white women existed, right? For non-white people existed, one. For non-white women existed as well. Um, and, and it's still here we are 56 plus years later, 56 years later, fighting for uh, free unencumbered access to the ballot. And not to mention, you still have in multiple places across the country, majority of the country, um, you still have disenfranchisement of voting rights for those who have been convicted of felonies. And so... So, you know, there's so many different levels to this and, and just really helping to shift the way people view voting. There was a recent um, survey, I think maybe it was a Pew survey. I can't remember if it was a recent survey. They looked at the difference, the partisan difference in how people view the right to vote with Republicans more likely to view it as a privilege that could be, you know, tailored and Democrats those or those who lean Democrat more likely to view it as an actual right. And so it is an actual right. It does need to be protected, and we need to do better in educating people, regardless of what their political background or affiliation is, on why access to the ballot is paramount and important. There are indeed levels to this, and all of those levels are rooted in this history that we love to ignore in this country. But I want to thank you, Anoa Changa, so much for joining us to talk about this issue and for reminding us of that history that we need to pay attention to today. We are out of time for this segment. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back. To By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are talking about renewed calls for a united Latin America. And we're happy to be joined for that conversation by Ali Vargas, writer and journalist with Radio Coaction Coca. Ali, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Jackie. It was a pleasure to be on the show. Absolutely. Now, you know, Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, as he is affectionately called, delivered a speech on July 24th, which is significant because it was the birthday of Simon Bolivar, the Caracas-born revolutionary leader who liberated a large part of South America uh, from Spain uh, in the first two decades of the 19th century. And he's called El Libertador, the liberator, uh, for that. And aside from his military exports, Bolivar is known for his vision, even back then, of having a united Spanish America, one that is strong enough to resist the recolonizing impulses of Spain and the rest of Europe, and also a young and emerging United States. Now, it's interesting that uh, uh, Bolivar saw uh, the United States as a, a an emerging empire, even in its uh, young uh, infancy at the time. But 
what is the significance of Bolivar's uh, vision for a united Latin America with AMLO's speech and what he wants for uh, Latin America today? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting speech because, I mean, Bolivar is someone central to the histories of countries like Bolivia. The word Bolivia comes from Bolivar, obviously to Venezuela. But Bolivar was not Central American. Mexico does not share, uh, you know, the history with Simón Bolívar. But the fact that they are celebrating it now, that Andrés Manuel López Obrador is celebrating Simón Bolívar, is a kind of expression that they recognize all parts of Latin American heritage and history as their own. As, you know, we may be different and have all these... Uh, you know, different cultures, languages, histories, but we have something in common, which is a wider Latin American mission and interest that binds us together. And, and we can celebrate each other's uh, traditions and, and icons. So, yeah, and he began sort of talking about the need for integration, but without the United States and Canada. And that's the key thing, because there's lots of, organizations and mechanisms for integration of the Americas. You know, ch chief among them is the OAS, of course. Uh, others include, you know, the Inter-American Bank, etc., etc. But all of these are mechanisms that have the presence of the United States and of Canada. And a problem there is, of course, that Latin America has different interests than North America. The interest of Latin America is to have greater control over its resources, over the, its economy, and to industrialize as well their economies. Whereas the interests of North America, of Canada and the US, is to take as much raw materials as, as cheaply as possible, um, either directly or indirectly. So there's like, there's two clashes of interest there that can never really be consoled. So any integration the pretense that that antagonism doesn't exist is one in which the most powerful always dominate. That's what the OAS is, right? That's uh, the role that they've played. So the point is to revive these forms of uh, integration that are for purely for South America can, that can represent those interests. There used to be UNASUR, which is an organization sort of launched by Chavez, and that included most, you know, all of the countries of South America, but not Central America. So I think AMLO is going further, saying that there should be some sort of integration for the whole of South, the whole of Latin America, um, at a state level. He's talking about the state level. I think there's another element of integration that's going on. This one being led by Evo Morales, actually, which is integration at an organic level, the level of social movements, popular movements. And that's why everyone's been traveling around to different countries um, and in launching a, a project for an alliance of movements that can go, that can exist past the state level. And, you know, even if one or a few countries turn to the right or if there are coups in those countries, then the alliance maintains because it's an alliance that can never be done away with. It's an alliance that lives in the communities and workplaces, etc. 
Yeah, and I'm glad you raised the OAS because AMLO also raised the OAS in his speech. And he raised it in the context of, you know, not ruling out replacing the OAS with what he says should be a truly autonomous organization and not a lackey of anyone, but a mediator at the request and acceptance of parties in conflict in matters of human rights and democracy. Now, I, I don't know, you know, Ali, does this seem kind of utopian to you? Or, I mean, is this a reality, especially considering that the OAS is actually finally uh, coming under a lot of scrutiny uh, for their actions in countries uh, where they claim they're uh, protecting democracy and and overseeing democratic elections elections and such. But it's become clear to many people, finally, uh, that what they have always been doing has been propping up uh, U.S. and imperialist uh, hegemony. Is 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 the replacement of the OAS something that uh, Latin American countries are well on their way to doing, or is this just a great idea in its, in, in its infancy? Well, Mexico has been talking, making noises about this for a long time, hasn't managed to achieve anything thus far, but the speeches and the, the tone is much more urgent at the moment. And Mexico, I think at a wider level, is taking a leadership role really within the region. So for example, at the moment, there's... Uh, negotiations between the Venezuelan government and sections of the Venezuelan opposition. That's hosted by Mexico. It was their initiative. They invited the two sides to come, and that's they were they're basically making a you know big show about the fact that they are the forum. That the United States is not the one you know, taking a lead on this. They're the ones taking a lead on this. So they take, and of course as well when there was the coup in Bolivia, they saved the life of of Eva Morales sending a, a military plane right, you know, from Mexico all the way to Bolivia to pick him up um, at the time when, you know, the people, were, the mobs were out to kill him. So it was uh, at key points in recent sort of Latin American history, Mexico has been trying to take a leadership role. So I think, um, they, I think they will try to turn these words into action at some point. What form that take exactly, we don't know. As I said before, the, the form it will take at a first level, it will be a state-level form of integration rather than a sort of wider political organic one, which uh, which is a project that is being done, but by other sorts of social movements. I think Mexico has in mind a sort of a very official state-level integration in which there's sovereignty. That's their number one uh, demand. That's the historic foreign policy position of Mexico is non-intervention in the affairs of other countries if necessary, be a facilitator uh, between sides, but never intervene directly, even, you know, something they feel strongly about. So I think Mexico would be a good country to sort of oversee this sort of uh, process. It'd be seen as more of a neutral player than maybe more left-wing Latin American countries like, say, Bolivia and others. Um, Certainly more so than a right-wing government that would have no no interest at all in this sort of process. So I think Mexico is is well placed for something like this. Uh, and yeah, the the difficulties of course is 
the difficulties that have always existed is how do you manage when you have certain governments within the region that would be part of this mechanism that don't respond to their own interests but respond to the, the orders of the United States and, you know, which could be destabilized by one call from the United States telling them, you know, don't touch this, don't, you know, don't get involved. So the, the challenge would be how to get over that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially since it's there is the reality of trade agreements with the United States between the United States and many countries in the region, not just with Mexico, with the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement that was uh, just signed, I think, during the Trump administration. But also there are at least 20 countries that the U.S. has free trade agreements with uh, and half of them are in Latin America. And virtually all of Central America, and that includes Colombia, Chile, and Peru. So, I mean, how does it, how do you see this kind of, of, of Latin American unity movement going forward in the face of the economic realities and the political implications of these trade agreements that these countries have with the United States? Yeah, it's, it's difficult, particularly we saw like say two years ago, Latin America was at a point where there are very few left-wing governments standing just before the coup in Bolivia would wipe out one of the last. And there was no will at all for Latin America to demand better, more equal conditions, mutually beneficial conditions in its interactions with the United States. In fact, new organisms like the Lima Group were set up precisely to violate the sovereignty of another Latin American country. But I think the only way it will happen is if there is another period like there was in the sort of so-called pink tide where there is a sort of critical mass, uh, at least a majority of countries within Latin America that can force a renegotiation of the relationship with the United States and Latin America. And once that renegotiation is done, then it'd be, it'd be difficult to row back from. Because why, you know, the, a new government, if they were to enter of the right, wouldn't want to row back from an advantageous relationship that had been gained previously. So I think it will require uh, a set of Latin American governments that are willing to force this issue, and they need to be numerous enough to be able to actually do it. So I think there's a lot of positive things going on. I mean, in Peru, there's a new government that is committed to to this sort of project. Uh, we may well see, I think we're likely to see, if there isn't a coup there, uh, Brazil joining this, which would be critical because Brazil is the largest economy of the region, largest country physically of, of the region. Um, we may even see Chile, Colombia. I'm not going to, you know, confirm... But that's something that's definitely going to happen, the left taking power there. But I think in, in Brazil, I think we can talk in almost sort of certain terms. So I think if those things can can really happen, then Latin, the hand of the forces of the Latin American left who want these projects of sovereignty will be immensely strengthened. But without, if it's a dream of a handful of different countries, then it's something that will just stay... Uh, stagnant because you you know the United States will only do this if they are forced into a corner by uh, a, a Latin American unity that sort of makes it itself before going out to the world. 
Yeah. And and I think in the last few minutes uh, we have, Ali, I think it's important that uh, AMLO uh, said Saturday that Cuba is an example of resistance uh, and proposed that the entire country should be declared a world heritage site. And uh, he has committed the Mexican government to sending two Navy ships to Cuba with food and medical aid the next day on Sunday. Um, Is his alliance, open alliance with Cuba, setting him? and his government and the hopes for uh, these plans for a united Latin, Mer- Latin America, is he putting this, all of this in the crosshairs of the very empire that he's wanting to break free from? Perhaps, but I think Amla has, uh, has a vision in which the, if Cuba were to have its sovereignty violated, that is to say if their, their independence were defeated, the revolution defeated, that would be a historic defeat for the whole idea of Latin American sovereignty because Cuba is the only country that's managed to maintain that state of sovereignty for, for basically the whole of the Cold War period until the present day. So if that bastion were to fall, the whole dream would, would start to fall away. I think that's, that's the thinking that AMLO has. That's the thinking that much of the Latin American left has. And that's... You know, we have to remember that AMLO is not some, you know, uh, long-time revolutionary. He's never been a, a socialist, communist. He's he's a he's a left nationalist. He's a progressive uh, figure who believes in sort of social democratic capitalism, but with sovereignty, democracy, without the intervention of the United States in internal affairs. So that is. That is a point of unity for all parts of progressive forces in, the, in Latin America, whether it be, you know, the Cuban Communist Party or sort of social democratic, the social democratic government in Argentina. Say, that's the point that unites everyone. And uh, yeah, perhaps it's something that's endangering that relationship. But I think if the the project wouldn't exist at all if there wasn't that defense of of the Cuban revolution um and and yeah i think that that will certainly play a key part a central plank of any process of latin american uh, integration Absolutely true. Thank you so much, Ali Vargas, for joining us for this discussion today. We are out of time, but you're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are getting an update on the political implications of the recent earthquake in Haiti. And for that, we are happy to be joined by Kim Ives, editor of the English section of Haiti Liberté. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Jackie. Glad to be with you. So, you know, of course, we've been talking a lot about uh, Haiti since the earthquake just uh, uh, a little 
over a week ago, more than 2,000 people have died uh, uh, so far. Uh, Haiti's Civil Protection Agency has uh, reported that at actually 2,189 people have been confirmed to have died in the earthquake and more than 12 thousand have been injured. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, Haiti can't catch a break. Haiti is unlucky and, and, you know, Haitians are always suffering. But, you know, there I think is another conversation that we need to have that centers around the political realities of Haiti's inability to respond to natural disasters. I mean, you know, because earthquakes and Tropical storms and hurricanes happen all over the place. But Haiti is a particular uh, in in a particular situation because their infrastructure is not developed to the point that it should be to protect the country and the people from natural disasters. And that's a political situation, isn't it, Kim? Exactly. Um, Yeah, I (laughs) would direct anybody who reads French to, uh, or now with Google Translate, they can read it in English too, even if it's a little uh, uh, boiteuse, as they say. Uh, the uh, editorial this week in Haiti Liberté by uh, the director of the newspaper, uh, Bertany Dupont. And, you know, he says, here we go again. Uh, it's, it's the same uh, problem which was raised in 2010 that we need to be prepared. And he, he cites at length the, um, uh, an article by a fellow called uh, Pripyti, Claude Pripyti, an engineer, who was saying we have to prepare for the next earthquake. This is in 2018. He said it's going to hit at any moment. We're, we're right on the fault. We've had lots of tremors. This thing is coming. Let's not wait. Let's get building codes in place. Let's get prepared. Let's move people so that when it hits, we don't have thousands and thousands of dead. And sure enough, here it is again. And what has done been done? Nothing. <laughs> so um, yes, it's a it's a it's a political problem, which you know really is uh, directly related to the um, uh, weakening of the state by uh, U.S. imperialism, principally uh, through coup d'etats, through low-intensity warfare in the form of uh, 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 neoliberal reforms and uh, constantly undermining any uh, Haitian initiatives. And uh, it should be said that this government, as much as it's been appointed by the core group, that is the group of ambassadors around the U.S. in Haiti, uh, Dr. Ariel Henry, but he did say, let's uh, uh, put all the earthquake aid that's supposed to be coming uh, and have it run and directed and deployed by the Haitian government itself. This is the same thing that the last interim government, that of Jocelyn Prevert in 2016, after uh, Hurricane Matthew hit the southern peninsula, they said the same thing. So we keep seeing the same calls for Haiti to run its own affairs, but in the end result, the NGOs seem pretty much to do what they want in Haiti. Yeah. And and aside from, you know, the the massive NGO presence that, of course, is not going to give up its, uh, you know, cash cow in a a a crippled Haiti. And, and, uh, you know, I think we should make it clear. It's not that the NGOs are creating this situation because, you know, they 
they're not creating earthquakes and, and tropical storms mm-hmm. and hurricanes, but they're certainly willing to swoop in and make money off of ostensibly delivering aid to the country that is hit by these disasters. It's disaster capitalism. And these NGOs, Kim, are so closely tied with the U.S. government and U.S. uh, capitalism and imperialism that, I mean, I think the the obvious question is, even if, uh, as you said, in 2018, the the previous uh, interim uh, government said, look, let's uh, make sure that resources are used to prepare the people. It, it It's not that the Haitian government or officials who were concerned about that uh, were unprepared or un, unable uh, to to carry out that type of preparation. It's that the imperialist powers through the NGOs and the propped up government literally would not let them. Right. And, and this is um, one thing I think a lot of Americans, or I, I would even say people worldwide, are not quite aware of, of this complex. We've heard of the military-industrial complex or the prison-industrial complex in this country, but there really is a thing called the humanitarian development uh, complex, which uh, is the eighth largest economy in the world. And uh, these are essentially these uh, non-governmental organizations, which is probably one of history's great misnomers, because they're all basically governmental organizations. They're all, every NGO is connected to some government, uh, whether it's uh, a U.S., um, British, uh, French, uh, or German. These uh, are generally what we could call the missionaries of uh, the imperialists uh, in the north uh, who end up going to the south. And like you said, they they just make a lot of money uh, and often uh, don't even deliver any even cosmetic changes or improvements for for people. Uh, I would direct uh, the listeners to a to an absolutely excellent book on the subject called "The Great Haiti Humanitarian Aid Swindle" by a fellow called uh, Timothy Schwartz, uh, which basically looks at all the great myths and uh, ironies, uh, beginning with the earthquake death toll of uh, 2010. Uh, it was fixed by the government. At uh, 316,000, and it turns out that this was a number simply concocted, uh, picked out of the air uh, through a forensic analysis that uh, he did with uh, a team of uh, scientists, um, and which was seconded by another team. Uh, they came up with a figure uh, more between 45,000 and 85,000. Now, this uh, survey was done uh, on four. Uh, USAID to figure out about uh, building assessments, etc. And USAID was furious, furious with Schwartz that he came up with this number. Why? You would think they would be so happy to say, listen, uh, about a fifth of the people that, that we thought actually died in the earthquake. But no, they were very mad because you need disaster. You need to keep the population of uh, the U.S. or France or wherever the money is uh, um, uh, on on 
a state of high emotion in order to get the money out of them to fund your <laughs> NGO products. So, you know, they come up with these great disaster uh, stories to uh, really uh, fuel the, uh, the money pipeline to the country. And hopefully we won't see the same kind of death toll uh, inflation uh, this time. Uh, already we are at 2200. That sounds like it is w- w- reasonable. But, um, you know, people should be aware of this uh, NGO development humanitarian aid complex, which is uh, going into overdrive at moments like this in Haiti. Yeah, absolutely. There is an excellent uh, uh, op-ed on uh, Haiti Liberté written by Jessica Sue and Mark Schuller saying that Haiti earthquakes demand Haitian solutions. And I'm wondering, Kim, how does Haiti get Haitian solutions when the interim government uh, that is headed now by uh, Ariel Henry is pretty much full of holdovers from the Moise government uh, that is obviously beholden to U.S. imperialist interests? Right, exactly. Well, uh, I mean, the first thing is there have been a couple of of initiatives to launch a uh, Haitian solution, uh, which uh, there's one commissioned uh, to uh, come up with a Haitian solution, uh, which has been on various news shows, and they have uh, quite a, a, a a number of the political parties and civil society organizations. But interestingly and tellingly, they have not invited uh, the coalitions of the shanty towns of, of Haiti, which to me, this is one of the biggest uh, uh, demographics that you have to have involved in any solution. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we were, I just got back from Haiti and, you know, we, we asked uh, Jimmy Cherizier, who heads the Revolutionary Forces for the G9 family and allies, uh, mess with one, you mess with all. That's the full name of their uh, alliance, which is about they're called the G9. In fact, it's about 15 different uh, neighborhood organizations around uh, Port-au-Prince in the surrounding area, and and they have not been invited to this. Well, you know, <laughs> this is this is not going anywhere if if you don't have the, the uh, millions of people who are living in Haiti shanty towns involved in any kind of Haitian solution. So it, it can't just be done something done with the. Um, you know, bourgeois and petty bourgeois leaders in some of these parties and civil society organizations. You have to have the grassroots, the poorest of the poor engaged in this process and this discussion. Absolutely. And with that, we are out of time for this segment. We want to thank Kim Ives so much for joining us. We are at the end of the hour as well, but we will be back for a second hour right after this. You were listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jack. Jackie Lukeman sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back. To by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
am back, my friends. Welcome to the second hour of By Any Means Necessary. It is Thursday, August 19th, and at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you to give us a call and tell us about anything that is on your mind. But that is not the only way you can reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary, because Aside from calling us at 202-521-1320, that's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM Necessary. Then our show can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating from you. You can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. You can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour, I have to announce that there was a standoff around Capitol Hill. It wasn't actually at Capitol Hill. If you don't live in Washington, D.C., you do not understand that quite well. But there was an active bomb threat earlier today. There was a suspect who claimed he had a bomb and he was live streaming while the threat was going on. U.S. Capitol Police, ATF and other federal agencies responded. The suspect has now surrendered interesting turn of events. And I'm happy to be joined to talk about this interesting turn of events and many others by Ted Rawl, award-winning editorial cartoonist and columnist and author of the new graphic novel, which I gotta get, The Stringer. Ted, thanks for much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Ted, I am just... I'm trying not to laugh at this situation here at the Capitol because it's not funny. But at the same time, just the fact that this person thought that he would start a revolution and not in like, you know, the Marxist-y, socialist-y revolution that we want. But I guess this kind of right wing revolution. But he, I, I mean, this whole thing has gone. I want to say too far, but then again, Ted, isn't it going in the exact direction and to the logical conclusions that we kind of saw it going to after January 6th? Uh, it is, Jackie. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, uh, nothing is really new. Um, this is certainly going back to Timothy McVeigh and as far back as, uh, you know, obviously the history of far right extremism in this country, like the John Birch Society and so on. You know, there's always been these kinds of kooks who are trying to uh, push the country even further to the right than it already is. And on the other hand, there is something new in that this movement was legitimized um, by the previous president. Uh, to an extent that we haven't previously seen. And I want to just say, by the way, that Donald Trump doesn't stand alone as a president who legitimized the far right. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan infamously launched his 1980 presidential campaign 
in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which was a backwater known for only one thing, the murder of the four Freedom Riders during the 1960s. That's right. That was a, that was a, a wolf whistle to the, to the Klan and to the far right. Um, but anyway, it is it's clearly there's a the legitimization uh, is going to bring people out of the woodwork uh, because they think they have the president or the last president's permission to do it. That you know, when you talk to people who did participate in the January sixth insurrection, many of them said, "Hey, you know, if they told the FBI, uh, President Trump." told us to be here. They, uh, I'm here at the request of the president. And, you know, they're not really wrong. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we're, I think this is, we're, this is certainly not the last we're going to hear uh, from th- this sort of uh, insanity. And, you know, in a, in a wild kind of way, Ted, this kind of thing, if, if you know, the, the, the motives of this guy turn out to be what, what we suspect them to be um, tied in with, you know, this, this January 6th uh, Trumpist kind of right wing movement. In, in a weird sort of way, the response in a lot of, interestingly enough, southern states to uh mask mandates and the spread of the Delta variant is also a part of this just kind of unhinged movement where, you know, these people believe that their rights are being infringed upon and, and, and it's, it's, it's spilling out into the school year. There are a couple of stories um, that I, that I think are very related to this, Ted, where, um, you know, aside from Mississippi uh, being, and a hotbed, a hotbed of uh, the Delta variant spread where there are 20,000 students who are now quarantined for exposure to coronavirus, 4,000 new cases Wednesday, uh, bringing a seven day average for new infections uh, to 3,526 uh, It's ridiculous. 1,700 people hospitalized for COVID-19. 467 ICU beds are occupied in the states. And then you've got, oh, oh, yeah. And uh, Tate Reeves has denounced mask mandates as foolish and harmful. But then you've got places like Texas where school boards, a school superintendent in Texas is speaking out. That's pretty much all he's doing. When a couple of parents attacked some teachers who were wearing masks, literally attacked them over mask wearing. One parent decided to put their hands on the teacher, one of the teachers, and rip the mask off the teacher's face. Now, Ted, I I, I think I have to give this disclaimer. This is just for me, Jackie Lukeman. I come from the school of my mama and my daddy who told me if anyone puts their hands on you, then you have a right to defend yourself. That They didn't say that you have a right to defend yourself. They said other words that I can't say on the air. But I mean, I see this, Ted, this, this response of the violent reaction to mask mandates for kids in school that we're seeing. And these are not the only cases. There have been a couple of other incidents where people have gotten into fist fights in the streets over wearing masks. I see this also as related to this whole Trumpist right wing, uh, you know, movement that we're seeing. And I, I just don't see it going anywhere other than for utter disaster 
But but now for kids, since we are talking about this kind of thing showing up in uh, on college campuses and in and in public schools, elementary schools, mind you. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, you know, one story that came out of Texas related to the mask mandate wars that I thought was extremely enlightening to, and I thought might have been kind of useful as an education for people who are in favor of mask mandates, um, was out of Paris, Texas, which is a relatively liberal uh, Texas um, uh, community. And uh, the the school district there found a way around Governor Abbott's um, uh, ban on mask mandates in schools. Uh, They decided to make masks a part of the school uniform. Mm. And so so, uh, that's a possible loophole uh, and they, you know, it seems very clever. And it occurred to me, you know, the, the, the right wingers who are so upset about this, and in some ways, by the way, historically, this does have antecedents. There was something called the Anti-Mask League of San Francisco uh, back during the, during the uh, Spanish flu pandemic, wow. 1918. Um, and it was also a right wing uh, sort of nativist movement, um, which, you, so there's, there's the politics of it are not brand new, but or not without precedent, but they're but they're weird, and um, you know I was thinking, well, the, yeah, I would tell the right wingers, well, you know, the, you wouldn't be mad if the school said you have to wear pants to school, which you do. Uh, we have to wear pants to the grocery store. There's a clothing mandate that is in uh, in operation in 100 percent of the United States, except for a few nude beaches. <laughs> Nobody complains about those. Everybody thinks those are totally normal, and you know those don't serve any purpose at all. Really, uh, in terms of public health, um, except you know maybe uh, you know you, you'll you'll reduce your exposure to mosquito bites, um, and the mask mandate actually serves an important public health purpose, and masking has been proven for well over a hundred years to have a profound effect on the spread of respiratory illness. So it is it's just it's it's very strange because you see people you know they're not for freedom in all things, uh, or they certainly are willing to accept. Uh, being uh, circumscribed in their behavior in a lot of other ways. So what is it about this that's really driving them so crazy? Yeah, I I think that it's really funny that, you know, so many um, uh, right-wing legislators are all up in arms about kids being mandated to wear masks in school. And there are all manner of pictures on social media that are being posted by these politicians of little kids, white kids and black kids now uh, standing in line in school wearing masks. And they're all up in arms about that. But I think it's kind of ironic to that the very same people who are mad about little kids uh, being mandated to wear masks in school don't like kids enough to like feed them if their parents are poor or don't like kids enough to make sure that their parents have a decent, affordable place to live or even work a job that uh, pays a wage that, you know, pays them enough money so that they can house and clothe and feed those little kids that they're suddenly concerned about because they're being told that they have to wear a mask to keep from contracting a virus uh, that could make them sick and potentially kill them and their families. But I, I, you know, I'm wondering, Ted, how you how how you see us getting past this? I mean, if the Delta variant is not controlled and it doesn't look like it's going to be in some parts of the country, um, then other variants will emerge. 
how how do you see in your completely, you know, unmedical, uh, but purely political uh, analysis? How do you see this part of this current uh, um, uh, current aspect of the, the, the political polarization in this country playing out? You know, Jackie, I think we're we're stuck with it. Um, the uh, unless uh, the Delta variant or the Epsilon variant or the Omega variant kill off everyone who refuses to be masked, which uh, I would also hate to see. Uh, for a large reason, you know, people under twelve can't be uh, vaccinated. So um, it's uh, but you know, unless there's some kind of uh, Stephen King, the stand kind of uh, scenario here, um, we're all stuck with each other, the left and the right, and everything in between in this very vast, politically diverse and highly polarized society. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before in the past, but I think it's, it's worth repeating. Um, the problem with American politics is not that we disagree about so many things. That's totally okay. The problem is that we don't agree on the facts. Mm. So, um, you know, we can, in, a, in a country with a healthy political uh, and civil society, uh, people can say, okay, we have the following issue, and then people can argue about whether it's, a, it's an issue or a problem at all. And if it is, they can argue about what, if anything, should be done about it. And then they can figure, and then they can move on from there. And that's where the political debate, you know, goes in some, hopefully, in a healthy direction. We're never going to get there because in this country, we can't even agree. For example, that COVID is an actual disease. There are a lot of people who think it's a hoax. Uh, there's a Facebook meme going around where people say, do you personally, have you personally known of anyone who's died or gotten COVID? Uh, you know, I mean, my answer to that is both. Yes, I, I do. And um, it's people, uh, you know, but, but like people don't agree that climate change exists and or is caused by or accelerated by human beings. Uh, people can't agree on uh, who, whether uh, Biden won the election or not. Basic facts. So, you know, I mean, you can't talk about, um, you know, or for example, most this week, I'm thinking about this a lot, you know, whether Afghanistan is where 9-11 was planned and hatched. It, it wasn't. Um, you know, I mean, there's just, and, and the media is, is often very responsible for sort of covering, quote unquote, both sides as if they're both uh, equally valid. And when often there is no, two sides. There's just really one side. Um, they, and, uh, and sometimes they just spread out white lies, like in the case, especially when it comes to foreign policy and any place that the United States is involved in militarily. So that's our problem. We can't even agree on what's true. How the hell are we going to argue about it? You know what? That's a great point, Ted, because I, I often hear people talk about, you know, oh, well, the two parties, you know, share the same values, but they just differ on how to get to the same solutions that they want. And that's absolutely not true of the two political parties, except if we're talking about the two political parties are both capitalist and imperialist and they agree on that. Um, But that's definitely not true of many of the people who adhere to uh, either liberal or conservative ideology. People don't people don't only disagree on on you know whether we should have universal health care or not no it, it's it's or, or or people don't disagree on how we get to providing uh you know health care for all people people literally disagree on whether everyone should have access to quality health care and I, that's just a, a plain human 
I won't even call it a human rights issue. That is just I think that just just exposes the callousness of the American psyche of your average, the, the psyche of your average American person that is doing pretty much better off than, you know, five or six other people that they can see in their neighborhood, in their city or their town. And they they're so protective of what they have because they believe they work so hard to earn what they have. So they deserve it so that they don't want anybody else to have it. And so, no, there, there is I agree with you, Ted. There is no consensus on, um, you know, anything, just basic facts about human rights, what everybody should have access to, let alone how we should get to uh, achieving these goals. But I have to mention, Ted, that you also brought up my favorite non uh, uh, my favorite fiction book, I think, of all time. Other than Octa- anything by Octavia Butler, uh, probably The Parable of the Sower is my favorite Octo- uh, Octavia B- Butler book. Very apropos for these times. But The Stand by Stephen King, probably one of my favorite fiction books. It's incredibly well written, bad TV series that were made off of it. But also Omega Man is a great movie that the movie I Am Legend was based off of. And if you think that Jackie Lukeman likes apocalyptic fiction, it's true. I do. And so should you, because in all of this fiction, there's just a teeny weeny bit of fact that we probably should have been paying attention to. But we're on the other side of the break. We're going to take a little break right now. On the other side of the break, I do want to talk about some more about foreign policy with you, Ted Raw, but we will be right back on By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. To by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, my friends. 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. I'm here, Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Ted Rawl. Ted, I got to ask you about this interview that your president, Joseph Biden, did with ABC News's George Stephanopoulos. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you either saw it or read the transcript, because I think everything you have been saying for the past year since Biden has been elected is pretty obvious and evident in this interview. Biden was an absolute mess. Stephanopoulos asks him several questions about the advice, the guidance he was given about uh, withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. And and I, and I got to say really quickly, this discussion is not uh, centered around whether U.S. troops should have been withdrawn from Afghanistan, but it's about how they were withdrawn from Afghanistan. And I think that is squarely on Biden. So, you know, Ted, one of the things Stephanopoulos tried to point out to Biden was that 
He said that uh, uh, Biden's military advisors told him that they should keep 2,500 troops in because the situation had been stable for several years and they just needed more time to make sure that everything, all the ducks were in a row and they got everything. And, and it did the chaos that ensued didn't ensue that the withdrawal would be more orderly. Biden in I just the response was incredibly bumbling, even more blunt bumbling for Biden, I think, said, no, no one said that to me that I can recall that, you know, the I, I don't recall thing. Then he said that, no, the advisors didn't tell him that. Uh, Then he said, no, they were split on that. Then he said that it it was the timeline. They didn't tell him that that the Taliban would take over, uh, but that they would wouldn't take over until like January or the end of the year. I I I don't know, Ted. I I don't think that Biden is going to make it to the end of his term. I think this interview does a lot of damage to him. Um, I, I don't know. But what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, uh, you know, I've been watching the poll numbers um, all day and they're literally like collapsing in real time. Um, the I mean, this was a this was a, a, a paragon of incompetence. I mean, as as you said, Jackie, uh, you know, withdrawing from Afghanistan was absolutely the right move. Uh, it's 20 years late. We should never have been there in the first place. So, you know, Yay, Biden, for uh, sticking to Trump's agreement. Yay, Trump, for talking to the Taliban. Yay, U.S., for withdrawing. But we knew we were pulling out of Afghanistan as soon as Joe Biden was declared the president-elect of the United States. And he knew that. And he had a responsibility to not just get Americans who wanted to leave out, but also anyone from any Afghan who had worked uh, with the U.S. military or uh, media organizations um, some people, including some people I know when I was over there, um, and get them out if they wanted to leave. Um, this is not complicated. Uh, this paperwork could have been processed earlier in the year uh, without withdrawing the, uh, without actually evacuating the uh, Afghans uh, until later, right? They could have applied. Uh, the pro- paperwork could have been processed, which it was not. Then, uh, uh, you know, they, each these, these Afghans have smartphones just like we do. They could have gotten a, a QR code and uh, and told, listen, stand by. Uh, when your flight's here, we're going to text you, make your way to the airport, and just show you, you know, be scanned, hop on a military transport, and get out. I mean, you know, any American uh, air, airline, Delta, United, American Airlines, is carrying far more than 100,000 people every single day in the United States. Um, the U.S. military has far bigger uh, capacity um, we we can do better. That's a big airport. I've been to Kabul Airport. Hamid Karzai Airport is a big place. Um, they have a big runway, long runway that accommodates uh, big transport jets. Um, the level of incompetence um, is just staggering. And even the, and I you know I do think the president's mental state is extremely shaky and has been for you know since before he was elected. Uh, but it, this also calls into question sort of the cabal of former Obama administration um, hacks who are advising him, and he calls their competence into question. Not only do we have a figurehead, you know, an empty suit who, you know, doesn't seem to know what the hell he's doing, but uh, his team doesn't seem to know what the hell they're doing. I mean, it's not like the U.S. has never withdrawn from a military theater before. We did it in Vietnam. It, it was incompetent. Uh, we, with all the technology we have, this should have been far smoother. 
Yeah, that that's definitely a fact. And and we have a caller on the line, uh, Tarif Simon, who wants to tell us or ask us about sanctions on Afghanistan. Oh, Tarif, tell us what's on your mind. Um, two things then on the sanctions on Afghanistan. Okay, first I'd like to say free drone science, free damager, free um excuse me, hands off Haiti. Uh, uh, before I jump on Afghanistan, uh, please, please people look into hyperbaric oxygen therapy. That's how it helps out people with brain damage and certain type of diseases and viruses, Alzheimer's and dementia, or people suffering side effects from certain type of uh, medicines or jabs. So, looking into that, I'm gonna share a link underneath the tweet for the day. Okay, Afghanistan. I was um, I forgot to mention yesterday. I saw a, a video Sunday that I saw the Taliban hurting people, hurting people into the airport to block the runway, right? Without really firing too much shots, right? So that's a tactic that they was using. So check this out: sanctions. Why would the U.S. put sanctions on the Taliban? On excuse me, the Afghan government when you still have ten to eighty thousand people that's in there. Then on top of that. Afghanistan, it, it got a hold of Stinger missiles, Javelin missiles, which is anti-tank missiles that you can take out, helic- take out helicopters with it as well. And also, there's other uh, technology called the FLIR technology, which you can see people in the darkness. And another technology, which got the 155 millimeter artillery um, um, guns, where if they shoot them, they got these special rounds called Excalibur rounds, or you need to paint a target, and it, it comes down right on the target. And also, it's a rush for the Taliban to organize the government quickly if you're paying attention to what they're doing. They're constantly jumping on television. We're going, we need a government. We need a government. Once they organize the government, if they do it before September 11th, what's going to happen is Iran, China, Pakistan, and the other stands around them are going to recognize them. So once they recognize them and shake hands on that, that means military aid and other type of aid that government going to receive. And that also means Bombing of Afghanistan will stop. That means no more flights from the Indian Ocean over the Pakistan territory going into um, Afghanistan to bomb. So that is out. Okay? So things change, and the U.S. lost, and NATO lost that particular world. So it's a new paradigm. The multipolar world just arisen in that area. That's all I wanted to say for right now. All right. Thank you so much, Tarif, for your call. We'd love to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Ted, what are your thoughts on our caller's comments? Well, um, you know, he he peripherally kind of brought up the issue of sanctions. And I, I think, you know, we do. There are de facto sanctions right now against the new Taliban revolutionary government that um, I think are uh, a violation of human rights. Uh, the people, you know, Afghanistan is basically... Uh, a client state of the United States. It's a wholly owned subsidiary. We have been propping up their economy with billions of dollars in tax dollars that mostly, of course, ended up in the coffers of corrupt government officials and their friends in business. But still, enough of it got into the economy to uh, to feed a lot of Afghans and provide medical care. Afghanistan's in the middle of a drought. Uh, hunger is out of control. And the Biden administration has frozen all all of uh, the government's official assets, uh, $9 billion worth. And they even cut off a half million dollars, which is nothing when you're trying to run a government, um, that was on the way. So uh, the Afghan government is basically broke. The Taliban government is broke. And they're not going to be able to keep the lights on. They're not going to be able to 
keep the toilets flushing, the, 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 the sewage system working. Uh, sanitation is already getting out of control. There's been no trash pickup. Civil employees aren't showing up. Uh, there's, this, is a, this is a bad situation when you take over a government. I think there's a human rights issue here. And although I don't expect anyone to say, okay, well, we'll give you back the full $9 billion, they need to lo- loosen the purse strings on an emergency basis immediately and let the Taliban have access to Afghanistan's money. Because after all, they're the new government and they, ha- they have a country to run and there's human rights issues. There's, there's basic hunger and, uh, and, you know, there's the idea of potable water, uh, police protection. All that stuff needs to, to happen on a day-to-day basis. Whether we like their system of government is irrelevant. It's, ir- it's, it's irresponsible to withdraw from a country uh, and then let the new government basically uh, starve and collapse because they can't run anything. You know what, Ted, I'm glad you brought up the day-to-day operations that are needed in Afghanistan that the government needs to fund. Because, you know, it's true that the U.S. froze uh, uh, the assets of the Afghan government just because they don't want the Taliban to have them. But it's also true that the Taliban has a budget of its own. But it is true as well that the budget that the Taliban has, and it's really wild that they actually have like, um, um, uh, you know, agencies and, and you know, like the, the division of mining, you know, that they use to tax people and, and that kind of thing. Um they they do have a budget, so they all they do have money and quite a few billion dollars, but they don't have nearly enough money that they need to run the government to provide services for the entire population of Afghanistan. And I I I, I admit that I hadn't thought of that before until you just brought that issue up. So I, I feel like this brings to mind. You know, the, the, the ways that even under the Trump administration, when the Trump administration made this deal with the Taliban that if they would, uh, if the U.S. would withdraw by May, then the Taliban wouldn't attack them. There was no attention paid to to this aspect of, you know, this arrangement either. And, and I feel like while, yes, uh, the Biden administration has horribly, horribly managed the withdrawal that needed to happen. I mean, I I don't think the Trump administration did anything any better in just negotiating with the Taliban. Okay, if we leave, then, you know, don't bomb us. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, The, you know, I mean, I I think we all knew, you know, we're we're really talking in a way about details, right? The, The U.S. was leaving, the Taliban were coming in, and, and, you know, the only question here was about the scheduling. Uh, you know, this was, was it going to, I personally thought, and I wrote about it, I thought this would happen around November. Uh, the Biden administration thought it would be January. It happened in August. I mean, okay, so it was a little faster than other people thought. But in the greater scheme of things, we all knew what was going to happen. There should have been a coordinated effort. Uh, and in most situations like this that have gone more smoothly, a provisional government would have been established uh, as the result of a discussion between the Taliban and the outgoing Afghan, uh, U.S.-backed Afghan government, or just between the U.S. and the Taliban. And they would have uh, arranged for people who had experienced governing Afghanistan before 
to, uh, to, to help the Taliban to essentially, you know, show them around, uh, show them where, you know, turn over the keys, show them what projects are being worked on, maybe in some cases stay on board and participate. But governance is a, of, of a country of over 28 million people is a, uh, you know, it's, it's a major endeavor. And uh, this, and I think that uh, the Trump administration did not plan on this, uh, but and they didn't. But in, in a sense, that they didn't really have to because it was they didn't they weren't in office when the actual withdrawal was coming down. Um, I think the Biden people should have known better. Uh, they they participated. Uh, a lot of the people in that room helped participate in the overthrow or the uh, subsequent of overthrow, the aftermath of the overthrow of Saddam Hussein's government in Iraq. And, you know, they made a lot of mistakes, right? Debathification, um, the, the, the sending all the soldiers home and turning them into insurgents. There's a lot of mistakes that, uh, you know, that could be prevented here. And also, there's a, there's a way to keep a U.S. influence in Afghanistan in a sort of healthy rather than uh, colonialist way, um, you know, by helping, uh, by by sort of by allowing them to have self determination without telling them what to do, I, I just think that we we could have handled this, uh, you know, in a way that would have played into the hands of the more liberal factions of the Taliban, the ones who say that girls should be able to go to school, women should be able to work, um, you know, as opposed to and and disempower the more hardline factions that we're actually afraid of and that the world has a right to be afraid of. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to say quickly that one of the callers, uh, other comments about, I think he was talking about hyperbaric brain therapy. Um, that sounds like something I can't afford in, in relation to COVID. That sounds like something I can't afford and I have good insurance. So that, that's the problem with all of this COVID discussion in this country, that we have a for-profit health uh, infrastructure where the best therapy that could help everyone, most of us couldn't afford it. So, you know, I can look into it. Most of us could look into it, but we probably, it probably isn't covered by any of our insurance. <laughs> for those of us who do have insurance. But, you know, Ted, I did want to ask you about your experiences in Afghanistan, because you you recently posted a special podcast on your site, uh, raw.com, uh, about Afghanistan and what comes next under the Taliban. And you talked about how you traveled repeatedly, repeatedly to Afghanistan throughout Central Asia, uh, written several books about the region, and you've been completely immersed and obsessed with the war in the country over the last 20 years. So I, I got a question for you about the the people, the Afghans who have been aiding the United States. And, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how, why there are even so many of those people? Because, look, we understand that they're always like collaborators uh, when a, a foreign uh, uh, invading force comes in and and does its, you know, imperialist whatever. Um, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are about why there are so many of those people in, in Afghanistan who were helping the U.S. And what does it have to do with like the... Does it have anything to do with the fact that Afghanistan has not been left alone by imperialism for 40 years? Well, I would argue that it hasn't been left alone from imperialism for 200 years. Um, when you count, you know, the, the first Afghan war 
um, by the British was uh, fought in 18, began in 1839. Uh, so, yeah, this goes back a long time. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, Afghanistan has been repeatedly invaded by foreign powers. Um, it's a crossroads and it's an invasion route. Um, I think, you know, I've given a lot of thought to this, and I think there's a number of factors that work here. Um, and I think the number one is that Afghanistan is a very poor, deeply impoverished country. And I think people in that country sort of view the idea of dying for an idea or a uniform or a flag as a luxury for richer people um, that, than they are. These are people who they kind of mostly don't know where their next meal is coming from, and they're very practical. Uh, they've seen a lot of death. Uh, you know, most three out of four Afghans are under the age of 30. Um, the people don't live a long time there. Uh, when I first time I went there, the life expectancy was 39, average life expectancy. Um, so uh, where life is cheap, um, you think, well, you know, am I really going to fight to the death uh, for this government? It particularly, you know, a, a bunch of ideas that you may not necessarily agree with. Um, it's hard to know how people really, you know, what they really want, because uh, you, there's, there's, there's fear all the time. Uh, be, under the Northern Alliance government, under Hamid Karzai, uh, you know, people, uh, they shaved their beards, they wore the pakul, they put up posters of Shah Massoud, and, you know, because that was what was expected of them, and that's what you were supposed to do in order to minimize your personal risk. Now the Taliban are in charge, so it's exactly the opposite. Let your beard grow out, uh, wear a, long, a black long-tailed turban, put up, uh, well, no poster at all, because figurative art isn't allowed, uh, but put up your Taliban flag. So I think it's hard for people who are from even slightly less poor countries, like, say, Pakistan, to look to really understand just how bad it is uh, in Afghanistan. I think that's big part of it. Um, and, you know, it's often a, a matter of there's no other work. Uh, over the last 20 years, if you were Afghan and you got a job offer to translate and work out of Bagram Air Base, uh, that was a good gig. And otherwise, what would you be doing? It's not like you had a lot of other options. You probably had no options at all. You know, maybe you could sell fruit at the bazaar for pennies. Uh, and so there's, you know, whereas if you got a job as uh, hooked up with the Americans, it wasn't just the salary. There was all sorts of connections that you'd be able to work. You could get your family jobs. Uh, there's all sorts of corruption, drug dealing, uh, all sorts of stuff that happens under the table. It was a good grift. Um, so it's, you know, it's, I, you know, look at people who work for, for an occupation force as traders, of course, quizlings. But I think, you know, it's, a, it's just a different deal um, when you don't have any concern other than law, order, and eating. Mm. Just different. Wow, that, that's deep. But we're going to move to another break right now. And we see you, caller. Uh, hold on. We'll catch you on the other side of the break. We will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. So stay tuned. By any means necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And we are back. Ted Rawl continues to join us. And we've got a caller on the line who has been holding patiently. John, thanks so much for holding. Tell us what's on your mind. Hi, thanks for taking my call. It's a great show. Um, Now that we're pulling out of Afghanistan, it finally seems like people are speaking the truth about the actual conditions over there. And they've got a lot of explaining to do, I think, too. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm kind of nervous. But anyway... um, what bothers me is that the Taliban seem to take over a whole country in a matter of a couple of weeks. Now, I know we've been there for 20 years protecting the Afghan people from the Taliban, but it sure seems like they have been in control of Afghanistan the whole time and were um, only biding their time until we just voluntarily gave up and left. And what I, what I read about the British occupation of Afghanistan was they'll be fine with the occupying force until the occupying force turns its back. They're, they understand that in an imperial situation, they don't have many options except to wait until they have their chance, you know? But anyway, how did the Taliban take over the whole country so quickly, um, according to our, our news sources? Anyway, that's my question. Thank you. Thanks so much for your call, John. We appreciate you calling. Hope to hear from you again soon. And you don't ever have to be nervous calling in to by any means necessary. We love to hear from our listeners. Ted, what are your thoughts on John's question? John's question is an excellent one. And I think one that many Americans have. And the answers are simple and twofold. Number one, the Taliban were in charge of 90% of Afghanistan a year ago. Uh, we just didn't admit it or talk about it. Uh, the People might remember some of the jokes about President Hamid Karzai being essentially the mayor of Kabul. That was true, and it never really changed. So all of the rural areas of Afghanistan were under Taliban control uh, basically over the last 20 years. Uh, the government had control of the downtown parts of the major cities like Herat, Mazari, Sharif, and so on. But even some cities like Kunduz, uh, Kunduz fell twice uh, over the last 20 years to the Taliban officially, and then uh, went back and forth between uh, central government control. Uh, the rural area, it was, Afghanistan was just never a uh, central government controlled country. It wasn't. It was a country that where it had the urban centers uh, were controlled by the by the uh, by the government, and and not the Taliban controlled. Everything else, and for that matter, they traveled freely uh, back and forth between uh, the outside of the cities and the city centers. And in terms of how it happened so fast, um, the Afghan way of war is not like ours. Mm. We have a sort of World War II kind of idea where two armies meet and then uh, they clash. And the, object- and the victor is the one who manages to kill enough of the other side to make the others surrender, and then they take them prisoner. And then the prisoners are kind of a burden, right, to deal with for the uh, victors, and they have to put them in a prisoner war camp and presumably, hopefully, under international law to treat them well. Afghanistan's not like that at all. In Afghanistan, in some ways, it's a more civilized uh, approach to war. 
Um, once one side has overwhelming power uh, and is clearly would prevail in a military confrontation, uh, the two the two sides meet. The leaders of the two sides will negotiate by satellite phone or in person, and they'll say, "Listen, you know, you you arrive. We all know how this is going to work out. Uh, join us uh, and surrender, and you can join our army and fight with us, or." Go home peacefully to your families and give us your weapons, or we'll kill you. And so, what happens is that the, uh, the 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 victors end up with no prisoners to deal with, and every time they win, the size of their army increases. So, a lot of the people you see dressed up as talibs these days, uh, with their impressive black long tail turbans and their and their beards, uh, some of those beards are a little shorter. And that's because those are former Afghan National Army soldiers and policemen who surrendered and joined the Taliban. Now, that process went the other way around in 2001, where I literally watched Taliban forces surrender to the Northern Alliance. And there were barbers waiting on the side of the road to shave their beards. And then uh, there were vendors selling the Northern Alliance pakul, which is the traditional hat of eastern and northern Afghanistan that was part of their uniform. So. You know, every, so when things move in Afghanistan, they move exponentially quickly because it's like an amoeba. Every victory doubles the size of your army. That is wild. The, the, I, I, and this is why I love doing this show, because we have guests like you on, Ted, who tell us things about what actually goes on around the world in other countries? We are getting the surface tidbits, you know, obviously the state approved uh, narratives and talking points about these issues uh, from the corporate media. But I, I, I had never heard that, that there were like literally barbers on the side of the road waiting for former members of the Taliban to come on over and, you know, shave their beard off and be integrated into the Northern Alliance. That is fascinating. And I'm wondering, Ted, about what your thoughts are about another aspect of of the Taliban uh, taking control of, of, of Afghanistan that they didn't already have control over. And that is all of the munitions and, and the hardware left over by the U.S. military and the Afghan army, particularly these uh, hide biometric uh, units. And I find this to be kind of ominous, but but not because the Taliban now has control over them. Because I, I th- this is what I think uh, it's uh, CNET reported that these hide units are hand- handheld interagency identity detection equipment. They were seized last week by the Taliban uh, as they took over uh, Kabul. And this is what CNET says that these things do in it. And according and according to the U.S. military, that the units were intended to gather biometric data on 80 percent of the Afghan population, or about 25 million people. Biometrics are key to the facial recognition technology commonly used for everyday tasks, like, you know, like you said earlier, unlocking phones, tagging friends on social media, but they're also used by law enforcement and the military in identifying suspects or other individuals. Ted, I'm really curious as to what the U.S. military was doing with biometric data 
and using it on 80 percent of the Afghan population. Were, does that mean that they considered 80 percent of the population the enemy? And, and if they did, I mean, how did they how did they figure that the Afghans didn't realize that was real suspect? Well, yeah, the Afghans are a lot of people, things and, and stupid is not one of them mm. that they knew what was going on. Um, you know, this, this I first heard this story uh, as part of the of the uh, Edward Snowden revelations that this was a project. Uh, that the uh, NSA had spearheaded and then uh, in cooperation with the DOD. Um, so this project goes back a while. Um, frankly, it's a moronic idea. Most Afghans are farmers. They live in the middle of nowhere. Most of them have never left and never will leave their villages. Uh, there's no security purpose uh, toward scanning you know, 80% or 8% or 0.8% of their faces. Um, you know, it's it's so American to think that this is a, you know, an intelligent way to spend taxpayer money uh, when it could have bought so many more friends uh, simply by, for example, uh, not, not propping up a, a corrupt puppet regime and allowing Afghans to elect uh, whoever they want, instead of putting their thumb on the scale, which they did from the very beginning. I mean, they installed Hamid Karzai, who by his own account was a paid CIA operative, um, which, you know, that sounds a little wild. Google it. You'll see. Mm. <laughs> um, it's, it's, uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I think, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a crazy idea. A lot of technology has fallen into the hands of the Taliban. You know, I was joking about this in a cartoon that I have coming out next week about um, you know how there's a lot of complaints that we never were able to build a modern, uh, well-equipped, well-trained army in Afghanistan. Well, we actually did. It's called the Taliban. They now have Black Hawk helicopters, combat uh, combat planes. Uh, they have all sorts of fancy equipment now. And you know, pe- anyone who thinks that they're not going to be able to figure out how to fly them or or or, or machine new parts is a fool. Uh, mm. They're very very resilient people. Yeah. You know, the wild thing about uh, all the stories about all of the hardware and equipment and munitions that have, quote unquote, fallen into the hands of the Taliban is that people are more concerned uh, about the fact that the Taliban has this equipment as opposed to why in the world was this stuff there in the first place? Like I like you said, Ted, I, I read this story about the Taliban seizing the biometric devices. And the first thing I thought when I read it was, well, why why is the U.S. military scanning, you know, Afghan rural farmers? What? Because that's what most of the people are in the country. What 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 the heck were they doing that for? But most people aren't thinking of these these kinds of aspects of uh, uh, this ongoing situation in that way. They're just thinking of, oh, no, the Taliban has all this stuff now and not thinking about, you know, the way Afghans were being violated in so many ways by the U.S. military and its allies since they've been there. And this whole discussion about the Taliban leads me, Ted, to think about this idea of Islamic extremism, um, you know, and and uh, fundamental Islamic terrorism, because, of course, that's that's the context that people think of the Taliban in. But I think that people get the idea that, you know, Islamic extremism, how whatever, you know, 
people think about it, emerged out of Afghanistan. But I feel like, especially on today, we need to be clear that the United States has been and and its allies, particularly Britain, has been destabilizing countries in that region for years. And I'm thinking in particular of Iran, because on today in I think it was 1953, uh, the the, the CIA and Britain overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran that uh, was led by Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, who was beloved in Iran. And after he was overthrown, uh, the Shah of Iran came in. He was a brutal dictator, but he also uh, signed over 40 percent of Iran's oil to uh, Britain and the United States through the Anglo-Iranian oil company. Before that, Mossadegh had nationalized the Iranian oil industry. And I think, Ted, that from that U.S., uh, U.K. coup in Iran, I argue that that is one of the key moments in modern history of U.S. involvement in what we call the Middle East that gave rise to what we know today as Islamic extremism and not U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. But I'm wondering in the last uh, three or four minutes we have, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on my conjecture there. I think it's impossible to overstate, as you say, the influence and the importance of the 1953 coup against Mossadegh. Um, you know, it, all Iranians and, you know, Iranians, Shia and uh, Afghanistan is mostly Sunni, but uh, Afghans know what happened and they know the U.S. has uh, not only um, had a hand in uh, controlling the government of their own country, but also in Iran, but also in Pakistan and all their neighbors, right? I mean, in Bangladesh, all the countries that are nearby. Uh, and so they, I, the, you know, they're radicalizing as influence of the United States. It's pretty pernicious. Uh, in Afghanistan, it, it happened also in large part due to the influence of uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, which has been uh, spreading money in Afghanistan and in Pakistan's tribal areas near the Afghan border for decades, building madrasas, training uh, Afghans who are actually pretty moderate Muslims themselves. I mean, you, you know, you you don't even hardly hear the call to prayer very much in Afghanistan. You mm. see people, uh, you know, pull out their prayer rugs uh, as you do in other Muslim countries in the middle of the day to pray toward Mecca. They're just not the most religious people, really, uh, and it's and they'll tell you that themselves. Um, but the Saudis are our partners uh, who like to murder journalists. Uh, they. Uh, they are. They've been up to this, and the U.S. has supported it wholeheartedly, and obviously against the Soviet Union in the 1980s, uh, backing the Mujahideen that became the basis for Al Qaeda. Uh, you know, it's an ugly history, and uh, we have the U.S. has little to be proud of over there. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned the Saudi regime, and I always like to remember uh, the conversation that uh, my husband, Abdul Shahid, had with me about the origins of the Saudi regime, the Saud tribe. And he said to me he was he was an imam himself for quite a few years, studied Islam and other comparative religions, taught himself 
Arabic, uh, just an incredible man. And he said to me, the real threat in that region is and always been has been other than the U.S., the Saud tribe, which came to power by killing other members of its own family to gain control of the region. So history is incredibly important. I'm so glad that we had Ted Rawl on today to talk about a lot of this history in connection with the current events in Afghanistan and more. Uh, We are out of time for this show, but we will be back tomorrow with a whole new show. So until then, y'all take care of yourselves, be good to each other and peace. By any means necessary.